Romans 16, let's get to the book. We, now, last week, if you were here, we stopped like a few minutes early. And I told you last week, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to regain the time that I got you out early last week, this Sunday, and I wasn't lying. But the truth is, we may need to borrow some time from next Sunday for today, because we got about nine pages of notes in my, in my sermon, and uh, that equates to a lot of material we need to cover. Romans 16 is where we're at. We've been closing out the book of Romans the last few weeks. We're trying to wind down this tremendous book of, of the biblical doctrine of salvation, and the last couple of chapters, Romans 15 and Romans 16, are all about ministry. They, they deal with ministry. And as Paul closes this letter, we, we are introduced to a bunch of names. And these, these are portions of Scripture that many times, as most Christians read their Bible, when they get to a, a text like this, uh, it's real easy to gloss over, ignore it, skip it. Uh, because it's like reading a Jewish phone book, right? There's just a, a ton of names. What do these matter? Uh, well, let me tell you why they matter. Every word of God is, is pure and it's preserved. And all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for us. And so every verse and every word and every punctuation mark is important in God's word. And let me just tell you, if your name was in that list, well, you would think it was really important. You, you find yourself in that list of names that Paul is is commending uh, well, that means something because they're forever eternally preserved in God's word as a testimony uh, of their faithfulness to God. And so we're going to pick it up in verses 5 to 16. The message is entitled, Ministry is Relationships. Ministry is Relationships. And, and we talked about last week, we, we were introduced to a, a woman named Phoebe who was a servant of the church. We were also introduced to Aquila and Priscilla who were a married couple who had a sanctified marriage. In other words, their marriage was given over for ministry to the Lord. They were recorded six times in the Bible, and they're always recorded together. And it painted a great picture for us, whether you're single or whether you're married, God wants to use you. God wants to use you. He wants to, to use you for his glory's sake. And we saw that last week, and, and we're going to continue this morning with a list of names. There's 27 in all. And so just like Josh was saying that he was struggling this morning, as I read these names, can I just tell you, man, I've read this list about 100 times, but I'm going to butcher these names, <laughs> all right? So let's read them together. Romans 16, verse 5, Paul writes and he says, likewise, greet the church that is in their house. He's talking about Aquila and Priscilla. Salute my well-beloved Epinatus, who is of the first fruits of Achaia unto Christ. Greet Mary, who bestowed much labor on us. Salute Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Salute Urbane, our helper in Christ, and Stachys, my beloved. Salute Apellus, approved in Christ. Salute them which are of Aristobulus' household. Salute Herodian, my kinsmen. Greet them that be of the household of Narcissus, which are in the Lord. Salute Tryphena and Tryphosa, who labor in the Lord. Salute the beloved Persis, which labored, uh, which labored much in the Lord. Salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. So, salute Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermas, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brethren which are with them. Salute that guy that I'm not even going to try, and Julia, and Nereus and his sister, Olympias, and all the saints which are with them, salute one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you. How'd I do? 
like, like B minus, right? B minus on that. Okay, man, a lot of names. Uh, you know, what's interesting, again, when we get to a portion of scripture like that, what's the point? Like, Jay, why would you even take a Sunday morning and read uh, names and, and read these names and, and make a sermon out of this? Well, again, 27 names are mentioned in Romans chapter 16. Every one of these names are exclusive to Romans 16, except for Aquila and Priscilla. In other words, the only other ones that you find outside of Romans 16 are Aquila and Priscilla. And so God has something very unique to, to record in his word about these people, and it's all found in Romans chapter 16. And, and as I was thinking about this, this, this passage this week, I got to thinking, man, it's interesting that, that Paul, at the end of the most doctrinal book concerning salvation there is in the New Testament, takes the time to commend and to salute and to greet those that are his laborers in the Lord together, okay? Because ministry is relationships. That's the point. And, 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 it, and I, almost, I almost even would have titled this message, The Judgment Seat of Paul. You know, we all stand there and we're going to give an account at the judgment seat of Christ for our service to the Lord after we've been saved. And, and God is going to look to us to give an account of how we served him. And, and prayerfully, the Lord would look at our life and say things like, Jay, who labored in the Lord. Jay, who was approved in the Lord. Jay, who bestowed much labor on the saints of Christ. You see what I'm saying? And so we could almost even just look at this as a foreshadowing of the judgment seat of Christ because, because God records in all 27 instances something unique about these people and their ministry and how they served Paul and how they served Christ. And so uh, really quick inspirational application this morning. Number one, I want you to see these are people who served Christ. These are people who served Christ and because ministry is relationships, God teaches us through their testimony how we're to have right relationship with each other. How are we to have a right relationship with the people that serve Christ within our body of believers? Well, here's how we are to have right relationship with those that serve Christ. Number one, we're to greet them, we're to salute them, and we're to kiss them. And all the teenagers said, amen. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> man, I'm glad you came to church today. <laughs> Finally. And all the parents are like, hey, hang on, sucker. Wait a minute. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Turn to your neighbor. You know, how, you know how pastors do that? Turn to your neighbor and greet one another. Turn to your neighbor and salute one another. And now turn to your neighbor and kiss one another with a holy kiss. And you're looking around like, where's my spouse? Okay. <laughs> Listen, it's just funny. That, that's how... Paul says that, that as, as he is expressing his appreciation for these people in Rome, he says, listen, I want you to make sure you salute them and you greet them and you, and you greet one another with a holy kiss, right? Because, because we're family. We're, we're the body of Christ. We serve Christ together. And I, I don't have the time this morning to go through every name, but what I tried to do was kind of lump them together in categories because that's kind of, as you study the passage, you see that Paul kind of mentions the same thing about two or three people. For instance, he, he does say there's a group of people who are beloved, the beloved. Those who serve Christ are our beloved. And we need to understand, like Paul understood, that, that, that the co-laborers that we have in Christ, man, we ought, to, we ought to have a love relationship with them. We're to love them in the Lord. We have a, they are beloved in our eyes. And he mentions a few guys. 
you know, Epinetus, whose name means praiseworthy. He's a Christian man. The Bible says he's the first fruits of Achaia. And when you study that out, that's the region where Corinth was, Acts chapter 18. And so this guy that's in Rome uh, now, Paul says, listen, make sure that you, you greet him, you salute him. He's the first fruits of Achaia, the ministry all the way back in Acts chapter 18 when, when Paul uh, was able to go to Corinth and preach the gospel. This guy was one of the first people to get saved. And Paul said, that guy's near to my heart. He's beloved to me. Make sure you salute him and greet him. And then you have some other names, Amplius and Stachys. And then he mentions a woman's name, a Persian woman named Persis. So you have a Greek named Stachys, and you got a woman named Persis. And, and all of them, Paul, of, of whom Paul said of all of them, these are my beloved. Make sure you greet them, salute them, greet them with a holy kiss because they're beloved in the Lord and they're beloved to me personally. You ought to have people in the body of Christ that you love. Now, you, you need to love the entire body of Christ. But man, listen, Paul is listing these personal, personal acquaintances whom he's met, some of which he led to Christ, some of which served alongside of him. And he says, man, these are, these are the most beloved people to me. Make sure you greet them. The second category that Paul mentions are those that are laborers or helpers. Laborers are helpers. And again, Paul mentions both men and women in this list of people. In verse 3, he mentions Priscilla and Aquila. We spent a lot of time last week talking about them. Let me just remind you that the Bible says in verse 3 that they laid down their own necks for Paul's life. They were willing to give their life for the Apostle Paul. Now that, that's powerful. Do you think Paul was appreciative of that relationship? He's like, man, listen, I, I got people that are willing to lay down their life for me and for the ministry. And, and, so, and so Paul appreciated their labor and their help in his life. Mary, verse 6, greet Mary who bestowed much labor on us. So, so you have a woman that's being mentioned and commended. Urbane, again, he says, salute Urbane, our helper in Christ, who's a, who's a male. But then you've got two Christian women that are following that, Tryphena and Tryphosa, who labor in the Lord. And again, he mentions Persia in verse 12, or Persis in verse 12. She labored much in the Lord. And, and I'm just telling you, listen, in Christ, we ought to have a right love relationship with each other, but we also ought to labor together. We need to help each other in the ministry Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Ministry is labor. It's labor. And we need help. We need helpers in the ministry. We need laborers in the ministry. And Paul just just goes on record to say, here are the people that are laboring in the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ with me. He didn't mention pew sitters. He didn't mention those that just came to church and sat. He mentioned the people that got their hands dirty in the ministry, that labored in the work of the Lord. And by the way, we're all called to labor in the work of the Lord. The third category that Paul mentions is, is a very small category, but it's those that are in Christ who serve Christ that are approved. 
And there's one guy that just kind of sticks out in verse 10. And again, we don't have the time this morning to, to go through all 20-something names. And, but there's this guy named Apelles, or Pelles. And the Bible says that he is approved in Christ. That's a very interesting phrase. And when you study the word approved through the Bible, you find that there's only one way to be approved in God's eyes. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15 tells us to study, to show thyself what? approved unto God. So if you want to be approved to God, you got to do what? You got to study the word of God. You need to be a a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And for whatever reason, Paul just says of this man, that dude is approved. That dude has put in the work. He studied to shown himself approved, not unto Paul, but unto God. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 19 says that there must be heresies among the church, false teaching, false doctrine. Why? That they which are approved may be manifest among you. You see, when you know the word of God, you've studied the word of God, you can rightly divide the word of God. That's what makes you approved in God's eyes. And that also makes you capable and able to defend proper doctrine so that we don't have a multitude of heresy within the body of Christ. And when I say within the body of Christ, I mean within our local context. What happens outside of these four walls, I'm not responsible for. But within these four walls, we have a a responsibility to make sure that we're approved and have right doctrine and not heretical doctrine within the body of Christ. That's really, really important. Matter of fact, the second half of this message is going to be all about doctrine. So stick around. The fourth group of people that that Paul mentions is those who serve Christ that may possibly become fellow prisoners. And he mentions some people that are also imprisoned because of their service to the Lord. He, He mentions Andronicus and Junia. So this is a Jewish man. His name means man, his name literally means man of victory. And, and, and again, Paul calls him a fellow prisoner, and so this man is victorious, not because he's free or in bondage, but because he's in Christ, right? We can be victorious whether we're, we're live in a country that has freedoms like our country. We can have victory in Christ whether we live in a communistic country. We can have freedom and victory in Christ no matter where we are because that's the power of the gospel. And so this man is mentioned as a fellow prisoner, and then this woman is also mentioned, Junia, who's also a fellow prisoner. The Bible even says of these two people that they are of note among the apostles. Now, that's really interesting. In other words, they're notable. They're they're stamped. They're illustrious. The apostles took note of these two people. It's like, okay, that's kind of interesting. The apostles noticed and took note of this couple, their their faithfulness to Christ, even up to and including imprisonment. that, that's a powerful testimony. The Bible also says of these two people that they were in Christ before Paul. And again, students of the Bible need to pay attention to that statement. Paul was not the first person to be in Christ. And there, there are some that would teach, uh, they're called hyper-dispensationalists, that the church age did not start until the Apostle Paul. And they would teach that the church began in Acts chapter 13 when Paul started his mission to the Jew and to the Gentile. Well, Paul goes on record to say that there were some people that were in Christ 
before him. When did Paul get in Christ? Acts chapter 9. And when he met Jesus Christ on the road of Damascus, he was put in Christ. He was put in Christ's body. The point is, these two people were in Christ before Acts chapter 9. So the church didn't start with the apostle Paul. Paul wasn't the first person to be a part of the body of Christ. There were people in Christ before the apostle Paul. This is also showing us the, the fact that, that you're either in Adam or you're in Christ positionally. Today, this morning, you are either in Adam or in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 22 says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And, and what God is showing us is there's, a, there's two federal heads of all of humanity. And if you've been born, you've been born in Adam. You're born in Adam's likeness, in Adam's image, You're born with Adam's sin nature, Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. So death passed upon how many men? All men, for that all have sinned. And so our first birth puts us in Adam. But listen, your second birth, your spiritual birth, puts you in Christ. Does that make sense? And and I hope you know which, which one you're in this morning. I hope you understand that your physical birth puts you in Adam, but listen, your spiritual birth can put you in Christ and did put you in Christ if you're born again. The Bible tells us in in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13 that by one spirit we're baptized into one body, whether we be Jew or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, we've been made all to drink into one spirit. When you got saved, when you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, when you put your faith in the gospel of the finished work of Christ, you were immersed into the body of Christ by the Spirit of God. It has nothing to do with water, has nothing to do with baptism as it relates to believer baptism. It's spiritual immersion in the body of Christ the moment you put your faith and trust in Christ. And, it's that, and that's where you are. You're in Christ. And, and that's a powerful place to be. That's where you want to be. We don't have the time to go through all the other names and and nuances. Let me just make a side note here. The one person that Paul doesn't greet in this epistle is Peter. And the reason that he doesn't greet Peter is because Peter is not the first pope and Peter's not in Rome. So without taking a a long rabbit trail, if if Peter was in Rome and if he was the first pope and he is the... the, uh, you know, the head of the church, and he's in Rome, and all those different things, well, Paul would have greeted him, without a doubt, and Paul didn't greet him. Why didn't he greet him? Because he wasn't there. <laughs> Paul wasn't, or excuse me, Peter wasn't in Rome. He's not the first pope, and, uh, and we'll just move on from that. So, so what we see in, in the first few verses of this passage is a lot of names, a lot of people that served Christ faithfully. Now, let me just ask you a practical question. In God's recording of all history, including your life, How's God going to record your story? How's God going to record what you've done from the moment of salvation forward? Is God going to find you as a, as a laborer and a helper and a beloved servant of Christ? Or is he going to find you as a wavering servant, a missing servant, a, a backslidden servant that never truly... It doesn't mean you're not saved, but it, it means that you never really got faithful and serious about your walk with God. Listen... 
take that list of names and put yourself in the list and say, could God say that of me today? Could God find that testimony in my life today? Would somebody like Paul be excited to greet me because of my service to the Lord? And if the answer to that is no, then change. (laughs) Repent (laughs) and get serious about our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ and the ministry God's called us to. Okay, so let's transition now because God also gives us in this passage another group of people that we need to learn to have a right relationship with. The first group of people are the people that served Christ. The, the second group of people are the people who served themselves. And we're going to pick it up in verse 17. And we're going to read down to verse 19. It says, Now, I beseech you, brethren... Mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such as serve not our Lord Jesus Christ. We just went through a list of 27 people who did serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And now Paul says, listen, there are some people that don't serve Christ, but they serve their own belly. And by good words and fair speeches, they deceive the hearts of the simple For your obedience has come abroad to all men. I I am glad, therefore, on your behalf, but I would have you be wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil. So as Paul transitions the letter to a different group of people, he wants us to understand these people don't serve Christ, they serve themselves. And the way they, they serve themselves is they corrupt doctrine. That's very interesting. That's very interesting to me. And so get this key principle down in your notes. Listen, You need to understand this morning, God cares about doctrine. God cares about doctrine. And and you should care about doctrine. (laughs) So so what is doctrine? Well, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 to 17 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for what? For doctrine. Okay, that's, that's... That's the first thing that God mentions Scripture is profitable for. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. So doctrine, and just write it down on your notes, doctrine is what is true. What is true according to God's Word? It's the specific teaching of God's Word. Scripture is given and profitable for doctrine, for what's true. Reproof is what's not true. In other words, what's contrary to sound doctrine. Correction is how to get right with God. And instruction is how to stay right. You see, the problem in the church today, and not necessarily this church, but in churches in general, the problem is that churches have traded doctrine for devotions. You see, we've traded in doctrine for daily devotions, man. Give me my daily bread, or as I like to say, my daily crumb or my daily crumbs. You know, when you study the Bible in Acts chapter 17, there's a group of people at Athens, the Athenians, they were having devotions in Acts chapter 17. And Paul goes in and says, listen, this aimless devotion that you're having, really, you need to understand who Jesus Christ is. You need to understand there's one true God. You need to understand there's a God in heaven that created all things and his son, Jesus Christ, can save you from your sin. But the Athenians were like a lot of Baptists today. The Bible says that they spent nothing else in their time but either to tell or to hear some new thing. 
They really were interested in devotions. They weren't interested in doctrine. And yet God's word says that it's profitable for doctrine. Proverbs 4 and verse 2, the Lord says, I give you good doctrine, forsake ye not my law. In Mark chapter 1, when Jesus Christ taught in Capernaum, the Bible says in verse 22 that they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. You better pay attention to doctrine, because doctrine is is what is truth from God's word, such as how do, you, how do you get saved? How did, God, how did God pay the sin penalty for my, for my sin? And how does a man get reconciled to God? Well, the answer to that is doctrine. And you better have the right answer concerning salvation. You better understand what the Bible teaches about salvation and what it doesn't teach. God cares a lot about doctrine. So much so in 1 Timothy 5, he says, Let the elders that rule well, the pastors that rule well, be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and daily devotions. That's not what it says. He says the elders need to labor in the word of God and in doctrine. Well, I need to hear just something to make me feel good. No, you need to hear what God's word says. You need to hear sound doctrine for your life from the word of God so you can put your faith and trust in that. 1 Timothy 4 and verse 6, if thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. So doctrine matters. Now in our culture of Christianity, we want to forsake doctrine for unity. Let's put the doctrine aside and let's all get under the name of Jesus. Well, bro, which Jesus are you talking about? Because, because, because the Jesus that you may be talking about may not be the Jesus of the Bible. And the spirit in which you're saying those things may not be the spirit of God. And the gospel that you may be preaching may be a different gospel than what the Bible teaches. Does that make sense? So in other words, listen, a man can't get saved by grace through faith alone in the finished work of Christ and also be saved by his work of baptism. He can't. And that's not ecumenical unity, that's heresy. But, but we, don't like to, we don't like to say that out loud, because we all want to get along in Jesus' name. Doctrine matters. God cares about doctrine. As a matter of fact, God cares so much about it that, that through the inspiration of the Spirit of God, the Apostle Paul makes sure that the believers at Rome are able to have a right relationship with those that are contrary to, false, to, contrary to right doctrine. How do we have a right relationship with those that teach contrary to sound doctrine within our church fellowship or, or church body? Here's how we have a right relationship. We mark them and we avoid them. Well, that doesn't sound too Christ-like. But which Christ are you talking about? We, we mark and avoid those that teach contrary to sound doctrine. So the body of doctrine that a church holds is important, and the unity toward that doctrine is important, and anyone that would come within an assembly of believers like this and try to create division and offenses concerning doctrine are to be marked and to be avoided. Well, I didn't come for this today. Well, it's okay. God said you needed it. 
And, and listen, there, 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 I think there's two, maybe there's two extremes or two examples of this scripturally. Sometimes, let me just tell you, when I got saved at the age of 21, I didn't know anything about doctrine. You understand? All I knew was the gospel. And I had to learn what the Bible said about salvation and eternal security and whether, whether the, the sign gifts are still applicable for today or not. They're not. Whether or not you can lose your salvation. You can't. All of that comes from sound doctrine, from rightly dividing the Word of God. But listen, as a new Christian, I was ignorant of those things. So, so there, there is something to be said about spiritual maturity and a growth of discipleship process in a person's life to help them grow to maturity. And in Acts chapter 18, there's a man named Apollos. He's a Jew. He's an eloquent man. The Bible says that he's mighty in the Scriptures, and he came to Ephesus, and he was instructed only in John's baptism. He's still baptizing people like John the Baptist baptized back in the Gospels. And he's preaching that for salvation. And the Bible says that when he came to Ephesus and he went to the synagogue, Aquila and Priscilla heard him speak that day. Now listen, what he was saying was wrong. And so what they did was they marked him and avoided him. No, that's not what they did. They went to him. They took him unto them. And the Bible says they expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. In other words, hey, bro. They said that, by the way, first century. <clears throat> hey, bro. Uh, you're preaching John's baptism, man. That doesn't fit anymore. It's now the gospel of the grace of God. The finished work of Christ by faith. That's the only way you can be saved. Nobody getting baptized is going to get saved. That's for Israel in the Old Testament and in the Gospels. So they expounded unto him the word of God more perfectly. So what did they do? They heard him take, teaching wrong. They took him aside. They expounded unto him the word of God. Let me show you what God's word says. And the Bible says in the following verses that he went out preaching Christ. So he was humble enough to receive instruction and realize the error of what he was teaching. Does that make sense? You guys okay with that? So listen, that's an example of someone that was just ignorant of spiritual truth that needed someone to love him enough to tell him what's right. And when someone took the Bible, the Word of God, and expounded it unto him more perfectly, he repented, he believed it, and he walked out with that revelation and preached Christ. You okay with that? But listen, can I just tell you, Titus chapter 3 tells us a man that's a heretic, after the first and the second admonition, you reject him. Knowing that he's such subverted and sinneth and, and, and being condemned of himself. And the point is, man, we don't just mark people and avoid people because they say the wrong thing. We try to pull them aside and show them what the Bible says. But once we do that, if they want to continue teaching false doctrine within a body of believers... Well, they get marked, and they're to be avoided. You see, the problem is in, in a church like this where we have a stance on doctrine and what the Bible teaches and what it says about salvation and eternal security, the problem is that there may be some people that come in that don't necessarily agree with that, and they like our coffee so much they keep coming back, and they like you as a church family because you're so nice, and they keep coming back, and they don't believe anything that's said from this pulpit, and in their mind, they're right, and everybody else is wrong, and then they begin to spew that within this body of believers. And when somebody hears it, somebody lovingly pulls them aside and says, Hey, man, I heard what you said, but that's not how a person gets saved, bro. Oh, yeah, it is. And all of a sudden, there's this, there's this canker within the body of Christ. 
There's this opposition and division that's being created, and all of a sudden we have a problem on our hands. How did, how did Paul mark those that were creating division and offenses within the body of Christ? Well, let me show you how he marked them. First Timothy chapter 1. As Paul is addressing his son Timothy, who was the pastor at the church of Ephesus, he says, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went on before thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare. In other words, if you're going to be a good soldier of Christ, you better have the word of God so that you war correctly. Holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. That's interesting. Paul goes on record to say, here's some dudes that are absolutely teaching contrary and false doctrine. And Paul says, I've I've disciplined them through church discipline. I've delivered them unto Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme the word of God and against the body of Christ and against Christ. That's how Paul marked those creating division and offenses within the church. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 15 to 18. We've already read verse, verse 15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun or avoid profane and vain babblings, for they will increase more unto ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a, a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus. There's that guy again. That guy must have been a real problem, by the way. Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have what? They've erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and they've overthrown the faith of some. In other words, they're creating division and opposition within the body. And Paul says, I'm marking them so that you can avoid them. And so, you guys okay this morning? I know, I know you don't get preaching like this. In, in, but this is what the Bible tells us. Doctrine is so important that it has to be protected. And those that teach contrary to it within a body of believers have to be marked and avoided. And, and, and so again... God says to mark those people. God says to uh, avoid those people. I'm not talking about people who are young in the Lord. I'm not talking about people who are spiritually growing through discipleship and were like me, still ignorant of sound doctrine because they're still learning. I'm talking about people who maliciously and selfishly create division and offense within a body of believers. Oh, by the way, to serve their own self instead of serving Christ. God says that we need to avoid them. Actually, God's word says that we as Christians need to avoid several things in the Bible. So let me give them to you. Number one, God says that Christians are called to avoid profane and vain babblings. You packed a lunch, right? We're we're called to avoid profane and vain babblings babblings. 1 Timothy 6, verse 20, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. The word of God was committed to his trust. The gospel was committed to his trust. The ministry was committed to his trust. And Paul says, listen, Timothy, avoid profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. So the first thing that we're called to avoid is profane and vain 
babblings. The word profane means ungodly. The word vain means empty. These are the adjectives that describe what kind of babblings you should avoid. Anything that's ungodly, empty, and devoid of truth, which is 99.9% of what you consume on Facebook. And, And God says it's empty, fruitless discussion. And the best thing you can do is shun those things. You can avoid those things. You can turn that junk off. That's a good spot for an amen, but because you idolize it so much, you want an amen right there. Because the truth is, you spend more time on that than you do in the Word of God. You know more about that garbage than you do doctrine. You couldn't take your Bible and lead somebody to Christ, but you can tell, you can tell the last 24 hours of the news feed of what you've read on Facebook. But you couldn't open that Bible and lead somebody to Christ. You couldn't open that Bible and show them they have eternal life in Jesus Christ. You couldn't open that Bible and show them they're sealed with the Spirit of God from the moment of salvation forward. But you can rattle every statistic of every shot, every vaccination, every CDC news release, your favorite football team. You can rattle all that off and maybe rattle a little bit of your devotion off of the daily nugget that you got. But not be able to exercise sound doctrine. Are, are we okay? There's some, there's some junk that is, as Christians we're, we need to avoid. Quit wasting your time and energy and emotional investment and resources and profane and vain babblings. They're ungodly. They're devoid of truth. They're empty. And they increase the more to ungodliness. So turn the junk off. God also says as a Christian, you're to avoid oppositions of science, falsely so-called. So the word oppositions means something that's opposed to, the antithesis of, an opposition to. And the context would be oppositions of things that are against God and against his word. And listen, all you hear in the media today is trust the science, trust the science, trust the science, trust the science. And by the way, this isn't turning into an anti-vaccine sermon, but it's sure not turning into a pro-vaccine sermon either. What I'm telling you is there are oppositions of science that oppose God and the Word of God. And God says, as a child of God, you are called to avoid oppositions of science. In other words, science professes that this universe came from nothing. Well, the science says there was just a big bang. Okay, well, they're wrong. Science professes that humans evolved from monkeys. And that's the best you can do, by the way. That's ridiculous. But, but scientists says, Dar- Darwin says, by the way, science now is professing that there are no genders, by the way. In med school right now, right now in med school, professors are apologizing for saying that a woman can become pregnant. They're apologizing in med school because they said a woman can become pregnant. Well, I I meant, you know, uh, non-binary can become pregnant. Please excuse me for my gender-phobic statement. That's, That's science for you. That opposes the Word of God. It opposes God. You see, science is nothing more than the shifting sands of the natural man's ability to hypothesize, observe, and reason 
but they are blind without the eyes of saving faith and the Spirit of God and the Word of God that gives light. And there's a heavy bias toward atheism, of course, because natural man, in his failing attempts, by the way, is trying to give answers of why and how. But he's trying to do it in a universe and an existence that can only be understood and explained through, through the realization there is a God and he has spoken. There is a God and he has spoken. And at the end of the day, they've rejected the God-given light of creation and conscience that God has already revealed himself to them with. And so this scientific method that we have many times opposes the very things of God. You say, well, you're just some ignorant preacher. I spent 20 years in the medical field. I think I know a little bit about research. I think I know a little bit about case studies. I think a little bit, I know a little bit about scientific method and how data is developed. And at the end of the day, let God be true and every man a liar. So again, this is not a message to tell you to stop taking your medicine. It's not a message to tell you to get vaccinated or not get vaccinated. That's not what being, what's being said here. What's being said here is, are you going to trust science or are you going to trust the scriptures? And the problem is, in most Christians' lives, that we've forgotten that God has given us an absolute truth through his word that is eternal truth. And we know more about what the scientists say than what God has said in his word. Let me remind you of what God said in his word. Hebrews 9 and verse 27 says, It's appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. That's what God's word has said. And you've got a date on God's calendar that is a standing appointment with your death. And outside the rapture of the church, you're going to keep that appointment. And you're going to keep that appointment no matter what. It is unavoidable. And whatever God uses to bring you to that appointment, it doesn't even matter. You're going to keep the appointment. And the question is, when you keep the appointment and stand in, in God's presence, will you be judged as one in Christ? Or will you be judged as one still in Adam? God says we're to, we're to avoid oppositions of science. We're to avoid foolish questions, Titus chapter 3 and verse 9. I've said it many times, not every question is a good question. There is such a thing as a foolish question. Titus 3 and verse 9 says, But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. Sometimes we waste our time answering foolish questions. You should avoid that junk. Quit wasting your time. We need to avoid the path of wicked and evil men. Proverbs 4, verses 14 to 15. The Bible says, enter not into the path of the wicked and go not in the way of the evil man. Avoid it. Pass it not by. Turn from it and pass away. You see, those that cause, and lastly, God says we're to avoid those that cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which we've learned. And again, we're talking about within the body of the, this local assembly. Listen, as a pastor, I have no responsibility outside of these four walls as it relates to what's being taught at other churches or in denominational organizations. I have no responsibility toward that at all. But I do have a responsibility to what's taught here. And, and to preserve the sound doctrine of a local church with Bible-correct doctrine. And so attacks within the local church, God says those things have to be dealt with. Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 19 says, These six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination to him, a proud look, 
a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that are swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. God is really interested in unity in a local church, and that unity starts with doctrine. It starts with sound doctrine. Paul says, listen, you need to mark and avoid those that teach contrary to the doctrine which you've learned, which means you need to learn doctrine. Now, if you haven't learned it in this church, either you're new or you're waiting on something. I'm not sure what you're waiting on. You need to learn doctrine so you can identify what's contrary to sound doctrine. Some of you need to learn doctrine because you think you know doctrine, but it's not sound doctrine. So their mark is required. Their method is division and offenses. Their motivation is the fact that they serve themselves. Verse 18. For they that are such that serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. You see, these are people that are contrary to the list that we read in verses 5 to 16. Those people served Christ. They laid down their necks for one another. They loved one another. They helped one another. They labored together in the ministry. These people don't serve Christ. They serve themselves. They serve their own belly. They're interested in self-interest, self-preservation, self-gain, and they are self-serving. And they don't bring any benefit to the body. And here's how they do it. Their methodology is they do it by good words. You know, it, it'd be real easy to, to spot someone that's, that's teaching false doctrine or a her, heretic if they just wore a sign that said false prophet. It'd be a lot easier, wouldn't it? That's a false prophet. <laughs> that's usually not the way it works. It's not the way it works on television. It's not the way it works in local churches. God says the way that these people work are with good words. And, and, you know, the problem in Christianity today is that we struggle between what's good words and what's God's words. We get upset when somebody has a little bit of tone to their presentation. But if somebody's nice and smiling all the time, it doesn't really matter what comes out of their mouth. We've got to learn to listen to God's words, not just good words. God says that, he, that these people use fair speeches to deceive. Proverbs 7 gives an illustration of a, a strange woman. She's a str- strange religious system. She's the counter to the New Testament local church. She's the counter to the bride of Christ. This strange woman, the Bible says in Proverbs 7 and verse 21, with her much fair speeches, she causes the young man to yield. With the flattering of her lips, she forces him. He goes after her straightway as an ox goeth to the slaughter and a fool to the correction of the stocks, till a dart strike through his liver, and as a bird hastens the snare, and knoweth not that it's for his life. Religion will take you to hell faster than anything else. And religion will do it with good words and fair speeches. And the Bible says that it will deceive the hearts of the simple. You say, well, I'm just a simple man. Well, maybe you are. But let me tell you what God's word says about being simple. It's something you want to avoid. God's word says that those that are simple are without wisdom. Let me give it to you. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making, the wise, making wise the simple. You see, if you're simple, that means you don't have wisdom. 
And what it means is you need God's word to give you wisdom. And so if you're simple, you don't have wisdom. Number two, if you're simple, you don't have understanding. And you need understanding. Well, I just want to have a simple relationship with Christ. I just want it to be simple. Give me a simple Bible so I can understand it. So I can read it better. So it's just easy to read. You see, we want simple Christianity. We want a simple Bible. We'll sacrifice accuracy for readability or simplicity. We want simple sermons. We want simple devotions. As it relates to God's Word, we want simple conversations. Void of any spiritual substance or biblical content because it's funny. Everybody knows everything about everything until the Bible or doctrine comes into the conversation. Because we want simple. And this is not to beat us up this morning at all, but it is to warn us. Our, our brand of simple Christianity in the Laodicean church age is costing us tremendously. We are rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and that includes a Bible, and that includes sound doctrine. All we have to do is go back to Genesis chapter 3 and see how the first woman was deceived. She was deceived with good words and fair speeches. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, the Bible says the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, the devil. And he said to the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Number one, he questions what God really said. And the woman said to the serpent, We may not eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden. God had said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Did God say anything about touching that tree? But Eve did not have the surety of God's words. Eve added unto God's word. Eve was forced to question what God really said. And it created the crack through which the devil worked to deceive her. Verses 4 to 6, the serpent said to the woman, Ye shall not surely die. God said the day that you eat of that fruit, you're going to die. The devil says you're not going to die. And direct opposite in direct opposition to what God had said. And then he says, your eyes are going to be open. You shall be as God's knowing good and evil. So here's what God's withholding from you. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree to make desire to make one wise, she took of the fruit and did eat and gave also to her husband with her. And he did eat. We, we would learn a lot from Genesis chapter 3, what we would learn is there are people that want to serve Christ and there are people that want to serve their own belly. By the way, that serpent was crawling on his belly, right? What we would learn is that, that good words and fair speeches don't equate to good doctrine. And if it sounds spiritual and if it looks spiritual, and it sounds religious, and the guy's smiling, and he's not angry or upset or passionate, then it must be right. That's, that's kind of messed up. God says in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 14 that Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Why, why would we take the time this morning to, to go over all of that? Well, because it's important. In a body of believers, doctrine is important. 
Doctrine is the thing that will enable you and encourage you and empower you to do ministry. The first group of people. And lack of doctrine will make you a lot like the second group of people. Serving your own self instead of the body of Christ, instead of Christ. And so listen, I I know that that's a strong warning from the pulpit, but it's needful for our church. It's needful for other churches. We have to be serious about what God's word says. We have to know sound doctrine. We need to know it better than anything else, by the way. We We need to know it better than everything else. I spent 20 years in physical therapy in the medical field. I could rattle off all kinds of things about physical therapy and nerves and muscle and movement and patterns and all these different things, and that's all fine. That's a great thing to to know. But I need to know what this book says about God Almighty, about Jesus Christ, about salvation, about eternal security, about the Holy Spirit of God, about how to get a hold of God in prayer, about what God requires of me from the moment I get saved forward, about how I'm going to stand and give an account of the judgment seat of Christ, Man, doctrine is so important for us, and I, I just can't say it loud enough. We've got to have it. So let's close our Bibles, and let me ask you a couple of questions. Number one, do you serve Christ? Do you serve Christ? Do you help in the ministry? Do you labor in the Lord as those that we saw early in the passage? Listen, I'm thankful for every person in this church, and I mean that. And some of you are growing. Some of you are brand-new Christians. Some of you are just now getting discipled. I am so excited for you. I'm glad you're here. I salute you. I greet you. I'm not going to kiss you. That'd be weird, but, you know, it would be biblical. (laughs) I'm just saying. Josh Hammond, as soon as the service is over, man, I'm coming to get you, buddy. (laughs) I'd have a bloody lip, by the way. You'll see me me bleeding in the parking lot. (laughs) He's like, you can kiss this, man. (laughs) Do you serve Christ? And if not, why not? Number two, do you create division? Do you create offenses within a body of believers? And if the answer to that is yes, you need to take heed. Because you're on the verge of being marked and avoided if it's because you serve your own belly. I don't think that's the case in our church, but we've had it in the past. And it will not be tolerated. It won't be tolerated. Let's pray. Father, we love you.